thinking a lot about crowds this week. What's the biggest crowd you've ever been a part of, and how did it make you feel? Biggest crowd, how did you feel? Women of faith down in Hartford, Connecticut. Women of faith? And how did it make you feel being a part of that? Inclusive, loved, yes. Okay, another person, biggest crowd, and how, do, how did it make you feel? One of, <clears throat> one of the biggest crowds, I don't know if it was the biggest, was Congress at the Heinz Auditorium in Boston, and how it made me feel is that this is what heaven is going to be like. We have people from all churches and denominations singing, praising God, sometimes dancing, um, and it just, I thought, Congress down in Boston, annual conference that used to be held, giving Sheila a glimpse of what heaven might be like. Yes, Naomi. Washington for Jesus. feeling the unity of being together with other people of faith from all different kinds of denominations. Somebody else, biggest crowd or one of the biggest crowds, and how did it make you feel? Paul. Nashville, the Grand Old Opry. Nashville, the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> Some toe tapping going on there. <laughs> I remember being to the Million Man March, the Promise Keepers down in Washington back in the 90s. I don't know how many if they hit a million or not, but I just remember seeing the, the mall from the Washington Monument to the Capitol just filled with men. And the, the most poignant part of that was all these guys down on their faces praying together. Uh, crowds have a different vibe about them. Different crowds are different kind of experiences. Uh, in, in some cases, we feel encouragement because we're surrounded by hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who share something in common with us, like those rallies that several of you mentioned. The, the feeling that because you're a part of that crowd, people have your back. Uh, you're uh, among people of like mind. There are other crowds, though, at the other end of that spectrum, perhaps, um, uh, who are, are facing off against each other. I mean, the, the lighter-hearted version of this are the, the basketball games at ENC or wherever you may have gone to college where one side of the gym was the home team fans and the other side of the gym were the, the visiting fans and there was shouting going on back and forth. But there are crowds that, that are, are, are protests or, or some, some kind of a confrontation. And, and I would imagine that rather than feeling encouraged in that kind of a crowd, maybe you feel like this is a dangerous place. Who knows what might happen with all of these angry people? Then there's sometimes crowds that are virtually invisible. I'm thinking about peer pressure. You may not be faced with a crowd of, of 100 teenagers telling you what to wear or how to act, but there's this pressure nonetheless from this invisible crowd of people that you feel like are pressuring you to do th something or say something or be something. Crowds come in all different kinds of sizes. Sometimes it's a small crowd of maybe two or only three people. 
I got thinking this past week about that kind of a crowd, the story that we find in Genesis chapter 16. God had given Abram and Sarah uh, a commission. They were going to be a, a mighty nation, a great nation. From these two people were going to come this nation so large that it was like the stars in the sky or the sand on the, the seashores. But that promise, as you remember, was followed by a number of years of barrenness. Sarah, I could not conceive. How is this promise going to come true if I can't even bear one child year after year? You can just imagine the bitterness of that growing within her. Finally, she comes up with what she thinks is a good solution to this. She says, I have an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. I'll give her to my husband Abram and she'll conceive a child and that child will be the, the fulfillment of that promise. So she explains this plan to Abram and Abram says, sure, we'll go along with that. We'll build a family this way. And so Hagar is given to him as her wife, as his wife, and she conceives. And then you know what happens. The barren woman resenting the woman who is now pregnant, the seed of her husband. And Hagar one who had for years been under Sarai's thumb as her slave. I don't know how Sarai treated her. We hope that she would have treated her well, but perhaps not because when Hagar conceives, she starts probably to have a little bit of a, of a superiority con, con uh, whatever the word is I'm looking for, complex. You know, for years I've been the slave, for the years I've been the invisible one, for years I've been the unimportant one, but now I've got a baby and my mistress doesn't. And so she despises Sarai. Sarai knows there's a tussle going on here between the two of them. So she goes to Abram and says, I, I, you know, I, I can't live with this kind of, of tension and stress and resentment in the, in the house. So Abram tells her that she can do whatever she wants to do with Hagar. And so Sarai begins to mistreat Hagar to the place that finally Hagar flees. It's intolerable to stay in this situation anymore, and so she runs. That's when an angel finds Hagar near a well in the desert and says to her, Hagar calls this slave woman by her name, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where are you going? Why are you running away? Hagar responds, I'm running away. I can't stand the resentment anymore. I can't stand the pressure and the hatred anymore. The angel says to her, go back and submit to your mistress. And I will give you a son who will become numerous many, many descendants, and you are to name this son Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears an Egyptian slave woman by a well in the desert who is living perhaps the most miserable period of her life and gives her this promise. God takes the time to be attentive to an Egyptian slave whose son will become a footnote in the history of Israel. God sees Hagar in her misery. 
and gives her this command to go back and to submit and gives her this promise that she will have many descendants. Perhaps the most amazing part of this story, though, is that Hagar gives God a new name. She gave him this name. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, it says in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the living one who sees me. God sees Hagar's misery. And God, of course, sees our misery, doesn't he? We may be feeling that we're in a miserable situation, surrounded by people who either don't care or are making life even more difficult for us. But we can take heart that we have a Lord who sees us in our misery. It doesn't take much to make a crowd. Abram and Sarai constituted a crowd of two that made Hagar's life miserable. Sometimes crowds are larger though. If you'd like to turn with me to John chapter the seven, verse 53, the last verse of chapter seven into chapter eight of John's gospel. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus sees the woman amid the glare of a hostile, cried, a hostile crowd. Her accusers were trying to pressure Jesus into seeing this woman through their eyes, in which she was a lawbreaker who deserved to be stoned to death. Or at least they were hoping that Jesus would let her off the hook so they could accuse him of being a lawbreaker. But instead, Jesus demonstrated that not only did he see the woman in the guilt of her sin, but he also saw her accusers in the guilt of their sin. Jesus doesn't miss much, does he? God sees the guilt and extends mercy to this adulterous woman. But he also extends mercy to the crowd, her accusers, doesn't he? 
He gives them a, a chance, an opportunity to think twice about what they're saying. And their departure, one at a time, starting from the oldest, perhaps wiser ones, was their confession of guilt for their own sin. And in a way, it was a, guilt, a, a gift of mercy to this woman. This episode captured by John in the Gospel is the personification of Jesus' parable told in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? God sees your guilt. We can't hide it from God. We need to acknowledge it ourselves or God will make it known. This brings us to a crowd story in Mark's gospel. If you want to join me in chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the word crowd to describe those who were surrounding Jesus quite often. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and he has as many references to crowds as does Matthew, one of the longest of the Gospels. In other words, Mark makes a bit of a big deal out of attracting our attention to the fact that crowds were surrounding Jesus, that wherever Jesus went, he attracted crowds. Sometimes they were crowds of miracle seekers. Sometimes they were crowds hanging on his every word. There were hungry crowds that wanted to be fed or needed to be fed, and there were crowds that were calling for his blood. Matthew or Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, is one of those crowd stories. It's also another sandwich story where Jesus or Mark begins telling one story about Jesus and then that story is interrupted by the insertion of another story only to come back to the, the first story again at the end. This is a sandwich story that begins with a crowd of admirers greeting Jesus as he gets off the boat coming across the Sea of Galilee and landing in Capernaum. Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched you? Come on, it's a crowd. <laughs> but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came up from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw the commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The procession from the shore where the boat had landed into town had hardly begun when this distraught father steps out of the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet. His name is Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, which means there's a better than even chance that he was treating Jesus with a little bit of coolness. Jesus had had a number of run-ins in synagogues with synagogue religious leaders. He was known to be an iconoclast. He was known to say things that got people upset. And so perhaps Jairus wasn't exactly one of his biggest fans. And yet now he found himself in the throes of a life or death family emergency involving his 12-year-old daughter. And so he rushes to Jesus to help, for help. I wonder if he would have been perhaps a little awkward at asking Jesus for a miracle. I wonder if he would have been a little irritated at the delay caused by the bleeding woman coming to stop Jesus. We don't know, but we know that he was full of fear that his precious 12-year-old daughter on the threshold of an adult life herself might die at any moment. And then a few minutes later, messengers from his home arrived with the news that the daughter has indeed died. His worst nightmare has come true. His hopes of a miracle now dashed because she's dead. What can anybody do with a dead person? His fear has now become fact. And in that darkest moment of his life, Jesus speaks those classic words, don't be afraid, just believe. The child is not dead, but asleep. 
Little girl, I say to you, get up. <laughs> God sees Jairus's fear and meets it with calm assurance. And God sees your fear too. God is willing to detour his parade and look deeply into your fearful eyes with his eyes of calm assurance. Fear often drives us to a lonely, desperate place, doesn't it? A, a place deep within ourselves. But Jesus takes our hand and said, don't be afraid. Let me go there with you. There was another person in that crowd that day who had been in that lonely, desperate place for as long as the little girl had been alive. One who could not bring herself to look deeply into the eyes of Jesus. This woman not only lived with her horrible, frightening illness, but also with the shame of chronic uncleanness that alienated her from the other people in the town. Her bleeding was a cause of ceremonial impurity, which meant that she was held at arm's length and longer from everyone in the community and also from being able to worship. It probably would have angered people in that crowd if they, known, if they knew this unclean woman was there in the press with them, touching them, rendering them also to be unclean. On top of all of that, she had been bankrupted by unsuccessful medical interventions. Yet as miserable as she was, as deep in despair as she was, she wasn't giving up. She had heard about and possibly even witnessed some of Jesus's previous miracles in Capernaum. She knew that Jesus was capable of the amazing, the astonishing. In Jesus, she saw a solution, a hope, an end to her misery. And we call this faith. She touched his clothing and power went out from him. She was healed instantly. And she knew it. <laughs> and Jesus knew it. The disciples surrounding Jesus saw only a crowd, a crush of people so large and so concentrated that individuals disappeared in that sea of faces and bodies. But she had touched Jesus and Jesus knew it. She had been healed and Jesus knew it. Jesus saw this sick woman's faith and that made her stand out from everybody else in that crowd, didn't it? Jesus wasn't distracted by the crowd. Nobody was lost in that crowd to Jesus. He recognized the one within that crowd that had this tremendous need and this tremendous faith. Jesus sees our faith too. What has Jesus done that you need? As you read the stories of Jesus in the gospel, what has he done that you need him to do for you? What has Jesus said that you believe? Crowds can be places of celebration and excitement 
and curiosity. Crowds can be places of anger and protest, places that give permission for bad behavior that we don't think anybody is ever going to see. <laughs> Crowds can be places in which we hide, in which we feel lost, in which we, see, we seem to be unseen. But no matter how lost in the crowd we may feel this morning, no matter how miserable, how guilty, how fearful we may feel, God sees you, and God sees your faith. God who sees me. What a beautiful name. Oh, there's lots of names for God, aren't there? The Almighty, the Creator, the Provider, and on and on and on and on. But how beautiful this morning to be reminded of the fact that one of his names given to him by an Egyptian slave woman in her despair is that God sees me. I wonder if you would like this morning to step out from the crowd. I know it's not real crowded in here, but just imagine that we're packed in here like sardines, right? <laughs> is there some despair? Is there some guilt? Is there some fear that you're burdened with this morning and you'd like to step out of the crowd and fall at the feet of Jesus. You can come to this altar, you can kneel at your chair. If your knees won't stand that, you can just bow in your heart and your head. But let's pray together. Let's step out of the crowd and seek the God who sees us. Would you for a moment imagine that you're surrounded by a crush of people on the shores of the Sea of Galilee? Or that you're singled out and facing a crowd of teachers of the law and Pharisees in the temple courts of Jerusalem? Or maybe that there's only one or two or three people who just seem to be a crowd because of the force of their hatred, mean-spiritedness. Doesn't take many to be a crowd, but imagine yourself this morning, someone who's despairing, somebody who's guilty, somebody who's fearful. Jesus is in that crowd with you, and he sees you. What do you say to him? And what does he say to you this morning?
he's probably going to ask you to describe the situation. How else would John know the details of, or how else would Mark know the details of this woman's many medical interventions? Jesus probably stopped long enough to get a bit of history. So describe your situation to Jesus this morning. Describe your fear. Describe your despair. Describe your guilt. And then think about the stories you know of Jesus, the compassion, the teaching, the healing, the restoring, the forgiveness, the patience, the strength, the love. you know this to be Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has come to seek and to save the lost, the one who looks for the one while leaving the 99 behind because the one is that important. This is who Jesus is. This is who you believe Jesus to be. So what does he say to you this morning? And how do you respond? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for recognizing us, for knowing us, for hearing us, for seeing us. Lord, our faith may be as small as a mustard seed in the face of the challenges that we're facing, but Lord, we have faith in you. We have faith in what you have said. We have faith in what you have done. We have faith in what you have promised. So forgive us, lift us up, heal and restore us, save us, cast out every fear and fill us with your peace. Yes. Lord Jesus, we are not alone in that crowd. We know from our experience, Lord, from a lifetime of experience that we are not alone in that crowd. We're not the only one with this fear. We're not the only one with this guilt. We're not the only one with despair. Lord, we've been praying for a person in our life for the last few months, a neighbor, a coworker, a fellow student, a family member, a friend. who may not have faith in you, but is struggling with some burden that's miserable. 
Would you pray for that person right now? Pray that as Jesus sees them, they would recognize that they're being watched, that they're being held, that they're being sought, that they're being wooed. Pray that their eyes would be open to the gift that Jesus is to them. Lord, we thank you for the fact that an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with transformational power. You never leave those that you see the way they were. Lord, we thank you for the renewal and transformation of our minds and our hearts. We thank you for the perspective of heaven that you give us when we begin to see through eyes of faith instead of only eyes of flesh. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that we have experienced in past days and weeks and months and years. We pray that you would continue to transform us into the image of God the embodiment of Christ in our world. And Father, we pray that you would transform this neighbor, this friend, this family member, that they too would come to see the God who sees them. Lord, we love you this morning. And we thank you this morning. In Christ's name we pray.